We are looking at Article 2 of the Belgic Confession this afternoon. And we're going to be looking at a couple of scriptural passages in connection with that, especially 1 Corinthians 2 and Psalm 19, though there will be references to other passages as well. So let's read Article 2. The title of the article is By What Means God is Made Known Unto Us. The article reads, we know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to see clearly his invisible attributes, even his eternal power and Godhead. As the Apostle Paul says, Romans 1, verse 20, all which things are sufficient to convince men and leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word, that is to say, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life to his glory and our salvation. This is the first article, brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ on the doctrine of Scripture. And that doctrine is expounded to us in Articles 2 through 7. But you will have noticed as we read through the article that this article is really more about the doctrine of revelation than the doctrine of Scripture. And so I want to focus our attention especially on the doctrine of revelation this afternoon. There are three things especially that I want to talk about in connection with that revelation. First of all, the need for revelation. Secondly, the idea of revelation as the scriptures teach us about that concept. And thirdly, the means of revelation, which is the particular um, subject of Article 2 of the Confession. As we look at the need for revelation, I'm going to start at some distance from that topic and work my way toward that whole uh, notion of the need for revelation. We have three ways of knowing things. The first way we know things is by observation, that is, by using our senses, our ears and our eyes, our, our touch and our taste and our smell. We, we use the senses God gave us to take in knowledge about his world. This method of observation is the method, of course, that is primary in the whole field of science. Science uses observation of the things that are, of the things that exist in the world, to expand our knowledge of the world. And of course, as the instruments that science has available to us, to it become more refined, that knowledge continues to expand. That's the first way of knowing, observation. The second way of knowing is by reason, that is, if you will, by logical deduction. We draw conclusions from things we already know, 
And in drawing these conclusions from things we already know, we again expand the scope of our knowledge. This is particularly, of course, the method of philosophy. And it has been, especially the method of philosophy, since the early 16th or 17th century and the philosopher René Descartes, who wanted to know nothing, nothing at all, except what he could prove by means of his own reason. And he started, therefore, with saying, I know nothing except this, I think. And then he drew his first conclusion from that. I think, therefore I am. And he built his whole philosophy on that uh, basic uh, observation, that basic idea, I think, and the conclusion, the first conclusion that he drew from that, therefore I am, or therefore I exist. So reason is the second method, and it's particularly the method used by philosophers. The third method I'm going to call faith. But I don't mean faith here in the biblical sense. I mean, rather, uh, it's the kind of knowledge we get by believing what others say. It's the kind of knowledge we get from the testimony of authorities and experts. And it is particularly historians who use this kind of uh, method in their uh, work. They go back to the sources, the original sources, and they use the testimony of those sources to try to expand our comprehension of ancient history. Most of history we, we don't know, even of current history, we don't know by direct observation. We can't see most of what's going on in the world. And we don't know it by reason. In fact, men often act irrationally, and it would be impossible to draw uh, rational conclusions there about their behavior in history by the means of reason. We need to believe the testimony of others. And if you think about it, this is, is something that you do every day. Uh, you uh, talk about the history of the United States. You talk about George Washington and about Thomas Jefferson and about all these figures in the history of the United States. How do you know about them? You don't know about them by observation. You've never seen them. You don't know about them by reason. You know about them by the testimony of witnesses, of those who actually met them, and sometimes by testimony from the men themselves. And, of course, you have to make decisions sometimes about uh, what's the believable testimony. Sometimes the testimony that you get about historical events is contradictory, and you have to decide which authority is the more reliable authority, which testimony you are going to believe. So those are the three methods of knowing. Now, we should understand, of course, that in any particular endeavor to know something here in God's world, we don't usually use any one of these methods exclusively. We use these methods in combination with each other. 
This is true, for example, even of the scientist. The scientist's primary method of gaining knowledge is observation, but if you uh, move for a moment to the field of theoretical physics, this is an area in which scientists are not uh, working by means of observation, but are working by means of complex mathematical equations, really reason, and are thus drawing conclusions by the application of reason to observed facts in order to expand our knowledge of the universe. We may even say that scientists, in a certain measure, practice faith. Think about what is called the science of evolution. That whole uh, theory of evolution is based on an assumption which is not provable either by observation or by reason. The assumption of uniformitarianism. The assumption that all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. It is an assumption, in fact, which Peter condemns in 2 Peter 3. And he says, these men are willingly ignorant of the fact that God sent the flood in Noah's day. But these scientists have adopted this principle of uniformitarianism, and they draw many conclusions about the nature of the world from this uh, faith that they have in the principle of uniformitarianism. Likewise, an historian uses particularly, of course, the testimony of uh, those who have been eyewitnesses of history or who have been closer to that history than they themselves are, and they seek to expand our knowledge by combining the knowledge about these various sources and then drawing conclusions, using their reason to draw conclusions about it. And they also rely somewhat on scientific methodology, that is the observation, the perception of our senses. Archaeology has as its goal, of course, the exploration of ancient history. And historians use the discoveries of archaeology in order to expand their knowledge also of history. So we, we mix these endeavors. These are not separate. We might call these three means of knowing the three simple machines of knowing. As there are, uh, what is it, six or seven simple machines in the area of uh, mechanical engineering, like the lever and the wheel and so on. So we might say these are the three simple machines of knowing. And we use them, as men use the simple machines to, in combination to create complex machines, we use these three simple machines of knowing, observation, reason, and faith, in combination to expand our knowledge. But the thing that we have to understand now is the application of this whole matter to the area of knowledge of God. Everything that we've been saying, we want to apply now to the knowledge of God. 
And the basic point that I think we need to see here is that not one of these things, nor any of these things in combination with the others, can by themselves, that is in isolation, give to us knowledge of God. That will probably startle you with regard to faith, but hear me out, and, and uh, I think you'll see what I mean by that. First of all, of course, there is this matter of observation. Does observation get us to the knowledge of God? No, it does not. It does not because God is the invisible one, the one whom we cannot perceive with our senses. We cannot perceive his being. We cannot perceive his attributes. We cannot perceive him as he is in himself. We cannot see him, hear him as he is in himself, touch him, taste him, handle him in any way. He is the invisible one, the one who is therefore inaccessible to our senses. And that's a very important principle in the scriptures because it's for that reason that God says we may not have images of him. He's the one who is invisible and we are not to try to make him visible. In making him visible, we reduce him. We make him less than he is. We fashion, in other words, an idol. So observation does not give us knowledge of God. Neither does reason. There have been uh, attempts in the history of Western philosophy to prove the existence of God. Thus you have Aristotle's proof. Aristotle argued that everything has a cause. And you can often trace a series of causes from today's effect. You look at something today and you can see that that thing that exists today had a cause in the past and you can see that that thing in the past had a cause before it and so on. There's a whole series or chain of causes that led to the present effects. But Aristotle's argument was you can't have an infinite series of causes. You, You can't keep on going back and back and back and back forever. There has to be, he said, a first cause, a prime mover, he called it. There has to be a beginning, and that beginning cause, that originating cause of all things is God. Or you have in the Middle Ages Anselm, a scholar of the church, arguing in a very clever way uh, This, he said, God is that being than which nothing greater can be conceived. God is that being than which nothing greater can be conceived. A very clever definition of God, right? And then he said, the next step in his argument was, existence is greater than non-existence. Therefore, God must exist. Basically, put this way, if God is that being then which nothing greater can be conceived, then a God who does not exist is a God who is not greater than 
any being uh, than can be conceived. He's not the greatest being who can be conceived. There is a greater being who can be conceived, one who exists. So that was Anselm's argument for the existence of God. And then you have, of course, um, throughout, really, the history of Western philosophy, I think, the idea that you can prove the existence of God from the world. You look at the, the glory, the beauty, the complexity, the intricacy, the um, uh, wonder of the world around you, and you say, it cannot be that this world came into existence by accident. This world must have been created by God. And the a modern form of that argument, of course, we call intelligent design, the whole area of intelligent design, which uh, delves deeply into the intricacy and complexity of uh, the world and argues from the intricacy and complexity of the world that there has to be a God who has created these things. So you get those arguments, but if you look at those arguments, I think you come to the conclusion, carefully at those arguments, you have to come to the conclusion that none of us gets us to the knowledge of the God who is. The God who created the world. The God who we worship and serve. Thus, for example, if if God is conceived of as the first cause or the prime mover, as in Aristotle's philosophy, well, that first cause or prime mover could conceivably be a machine, altogether impersonal, something that created an effect somewhere along the line, and then that effect uh, created additional effects, and those effects uh, combined in various ways to create additional effects, and so finally we come down to the world that we, as we have it today. The Big Bang Theory kind of fits that pattern, doesn't it? That all matter was at one time compressed into a point, and that this point of matter, of exceedingly dense matter, exploded. It produced an effect. And then there have been many, many effects that have flowed out of that Big Bang sense until we get the world as it is today. So Aristotle's idea that he can prove God by philosophy at best proves the beginning of all things in a kind of perhaps mechanical first cause. Anselm's argument is a much more clever argument, but if you leave all the revelation of God in the scriptures out of it, how would you, from the uh, argument of Anselm, conclude that God is triune? Or how would you, from the argument of Anselm, conclude that God has so worked in his creation as not only to make it and to govern it by certain laws, but also to perform in it certain very great miracles. The miracle of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and the miracle 
of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't get to that kind of knowledge of God by Anselm's argument. Perhaps he proves that a God must exist. But who is that God? And the same is true even of intelligent design. We have the idea in this whole argument of intelligent design that God is, exists, that God is an intelligent being, only an intelligent being could have created the world. But there have been many gods in the history of Western civilization who have been thought of as intelligent. Which of those gods is the one whose existence we have proved by the argument of intelligent design? Have we proved the existence of the god of creation, the God who actually exists. But even faith by itself cannot get us to God. And what I mean by this is faith needs something to take hold of. You can't have faith in a vacuum. You can't have faith without some kind of objective testimony for faith to believe. And if the testimony doesn't exist, if the authority or the expert doesn't exist, if there's nothing said or made known objectively about whatever it is we're seeking knowledge for, faith has nothing to take hold of. Maybe, for example, some people existed several thousand years ago in some part of Africa of which we know nothing today. We have no testimony regarding this people. There's no one who's ever spoken of them. We've, there's no written records of them. There's no uh, archaeological record of them. Well, how can you believe that such a people existed? How can you know that such a people existed? Faith has to take hold of something objective. And that's where we get to the point that we need revelation. You can't know God by observation. You can't perceive him with your senses. You can't know God by your reason because your reason can't imagine him to be as he really is in himself. The best your reason can do, perhaps, is to teach you that there is a God. But who that God is, is hidden from you. You can't get to him by bare faith. Because faith needs to take hold of objective testimony. So the only way we can know God is if he makes himself known to us. Or if he will, if he reveals himself to us. If he speaks to us about himself. Now there are many who say, well this is a kind of circular reasoning. You say you prove the existence of God because God has spoken, but you prove the existence of God from his spoken word. Well, you can also put it this way, I think. For us, who are Christians, it is as if 
Alexander the Great or some great figure of history came to us today in this place and talked to us about himself. That's what God does for us. He reveals himself. He comes and he talks to us about himself. Our authority is God himself. The testimony we receive is the testimony which God himself has given. And he, of course, is the God of truth who cannot lie, who always speaks truth, and whose testimony, therefore, is utterly reliable. We have no need to question any of it. We have need always to question the testimony of men. Men are by nature liars. But God is absolutely trustworthy, and he has in his revelation spoken truth, spoken truth about himself, so that we can come to know him. Now we get some assistance in this also. We get some assistance from archaeology, for example. Archaeology has demonstrated, biblical archaeology particularly, has demonstrated the truth of much of the history that's recorded in the Old Testament. We get help from the arguments about intelligent design. We get help from those many human witnesses who saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection. They were reliable witnesses. And there were many of them, and they were all saying the same thing. This man who died, who was crucified by Pontius Pilate, he's, he's alive again. He's risen from the dead. So we have various helps through all of these different channels of knowing. We can draw good and necessary consequences, as the Westminster Confession says, from the revelation of God in Scripture that expand our knowledge. We have all these different ways of knowing, and they all help us to know God. But what it comes down to, ultimately, the root of our knowledge, is the revelation of God. And then our faith, our believing that revelation of God. So that's the need for revelation. We cannot get to God by ourselves. We cannot get to the knowledge of the one true God. By the exercise of our own senses, by the exercise of our own minds, or even by the exercise of a bare faith. Now let's look in the second place then at the meaning of revelation, the idea of revelation in the scriptures. I want to look at a couple of scriptural passages here, first of all. That word revelation in the New Testament is used in basically two different ways. First of all, the basic idea of the word means simply to uncover something. And sometimes the word means simply to um, make knowledge available, to make something known. If you look at Matthew 10, verse 26, Matthew 10, verse 26, Jesus says there, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. There are things that are hidden from our knowledge, covered up. Jesus says, there is nothing covered that will not be revealed. Nothing covered that will not be made known. 
That's the one idea of this word. You can see it again in Luke chapter 17, verse 30. Luke chapter 17, verse 30. Where we have this word of God. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And Jesus is talking there about his second coming and about his appearance at that second coming to the very physical eyes of men. At that day, they will see him in the flesh. Every eye will see him, he says, in another place. He will be made known, manifested to the world. And then in Romans 1, verse 18, the apostle talks about the revelation of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This wrath of God goes to work in the world. It does things that a wrathful God would do if he were angry. That's the revelation of his wrath. We see his wrath working out in the creation in all kinds of different ways in his judgments. So that's one idea. It's simply the idea of making something known, putting knowledge out there and making it available. But there's another idea of revelation that's much deeper and in this context much more important to us. And that is not only that there is this objective setting forth of knowledge that God sets forth knowledge of himself, manifests himself, or makes knowledge available about himself, but that he also works in our hearts so that we receive that knowledge. He gives us the faith, then, that takes that knowledge in, that says, yes, that is true. That I believe. And the Apostle Paul talks about this uh, kind of revelation, this revelation that includes both the revelation of knowledge, the setting forth of knowledge, and the receiving of that knowledge in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 to 16. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 16. Paul says there in verse 9, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Notice how Paul rejects there first knowledge gained through the senses. I has not seen, nor ear heard. And he also rejects knowledge gained by reason, nor have entered into the heart of man. And it's knowledge about the things which God has prepared for those who love him, the things which belong to our salvation. Can't get to them by observation. We can't get to them by our reason. God has made them known. He has prepared them. But notice what Paul says in verse 10 then, God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. His Spirit is the one who makes these things known to us. And then he goes on to describe the work of the Spirit in the following 
statements. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. How is it that the Spirit can reveal these things? Well, He is the one who knows what is in the mind of God. He knows all those things about our salvation that are in the mind of God. He searches them all out so that they are in His mind. And Paul makes this comparison then in verse 11. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Notice that. No one knows the things of God except the spirit of God who searches the deep things of God. But how do we know them then? That's in verse 12 and following. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So that spirit has been sent to us that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Here's the process of revelation. God makes this knowledge known. He gives this knowledge to the spirit. The spirit comes to us and communicates that knowledge to us. In verse 13 and following, he describes this even in more detail. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches. Notice how he rejects again the efforts of men in these things, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. I think what he means there. He's referring to as the Word of God. The Word of God is written and the Word of God is preached by the apostles. He says, these things we also speak, he and the rest of the apostles, verse 13. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual But then he makes a very important distinction in verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He divides men into two groups here. The natural man, he says, does not receive these things, does not receive the knowledge of God and of the things which God has prepared for those who love him. For they are foolishness to them, nor can he know them. He can't know them. Because they are spiritually discerned. That is, they are discerned by the Spirit dwelling in our hearts. So Paul speaks about the objective testimony of the Word in verse 13. And then he speaks about the internal work of the Spirit in verse 14. They are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Why do we have the mind of Christ? Because the Spirit of Christ has given to us, the mind of Christ has searched the deep things of God and has revealed them to us and has dwelt in our hearts to create in us the mind of Christ. This is, these are the two sides of Revelation, the objective testimony of God And then the believing that testimony which the Spirit of God works. 
And we should recognize that this method of knowing, this, this revelation, as the scriptures talk about it here in 1 Corinthians 2 and in other places, Jesus says, for example, in, somewhere in the Gospel of John, that no one knows the Father except the Son, and he to whomever the Son will reveal him. But this, this method of knowing them, this method of revelation, which is both objective and internal, applies both to the knowledge of God in creation and to the knowledge of God in the Word. Romans 1 verse 18 talk, verses 18 and following talk very clearly about God's revelation in the creation. The creation reveals his eternal power in Godhead, Paul says there. And he goes even further, he says, God has made this knowledge of himself manifest in men. That is, he has stamped it upon their hearts, upon their minds. But Paul also goes on to tell us what men do with it. What does he say in Romans 1 about what men do with that knowledge of God, which God has manifested in them and revealed in his creation? They change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They do not receive the knowledge of God. They do not believe it. They suppress it. They deny it. They reject it. They invent their own gods in the place of the one true God. We can believe God's revelation of himself in creation, as John Calvin says somewhere, only as we look at that creation through the eyeglasses of the scriptures. We need God's revelation of himself in the word and by the spirit in our hearts, also in order to receive the revelation of God in the creation. So in this last little bit, I've been talking about the two means of revelation, our third point and the main point of the article of the Belgic Confession that we're looking at. God makes himself known in two ways. He makes himself known through the creation and he makes himself known through his word. Belgic Confession says about God's revelation in creation that we know him by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book. I love that phrase. Which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to see clearly his invisible attributes, even his eternal power and Godhead, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. But note what the confession says there. That revelation of God in his creation leads us to see clearly his invisible attributes, his eternal power and Godhead. There's a lot more to be known about God than those two things. The revelation of God in creation is not complete. We do not know him as the triune God, for example, through his creation. We cannot know him as the triune God in that way. We cannot know about his work of salvation through creation. 
Those are things we know only from the word, the other means of revelation. Notice, too, what power this uh, revelation of God in creation has. It creates in those who believe admiration, adoration for this great God who has created these things, who has written, as it were, this most elegant book. But it leaves the natural man without excuse. That's all it can do for him by itself. It can leave him only without excuse. That's also from Romans chapter 1. It cannot save. It cannot bring him to the knowledge of the true and living God. It cannot bring him into fellowship with that God. But the second means of revelation is the word, the scriptures. And notice what the confession says about that. He makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word. That revelation in his word is more clear and more full, more complete. Not complete. God is the incomprehensible one. We will never plumb the depths of the knowledge of God. Even in glory, there will always be more to be known about the infinite God. Our minds cannot take hold of him completely. But he makes himself more clearly and fully known in his holy and divine word. He has revealed himself to us in his word, and he has made much more known to us in the word than he has in creation. And this revelation has power to save and to bring us to our knees in worship. He makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word. That is to say, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life, to his glory and our salvation. And in that connection, then, I want to look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19 has two parts. In the first part, David talks about the revelation of God in creation, verses 1 to 6. And in the second part, he talks about God's revelation of himself in his word, especially in his law. Notice about the first part, verses 1 to 6, three things. First of all, in that first part, David uses the name God, and only the name God. He does not use the name Yahweh, the personal name of God. The creation cannot make known to us that name, that he is the God of the covenant, faithful to his promises. Secondly, notice what the creation does make known. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Very similar to what Paul says in Romans 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And that's all. It says no more about what is known of God through the creation than that that we find in the first verse. This language of the creation is universal. Every man hears it. Every creature utters it. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night shows knowledge. It's 
everywhere in the creation. It's available to all men. But the consequence of it is what in there? What, what results from it? There's nothing explicit there, is there? What do men actually confess about the God who is revealed in the creation then as a consequence of that revelation? Nothing. Nothing is said. Now we could point out, of course, that this psalm is a confession of the people of God, a psalm which they sing joyfully in adoration of their God. It stirs them up to the uh, admiration of God, but these are believers we're talking about. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork, and who receives that knowledge? Believers, not unbelievers. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visit him? That is also a confession of the people of God. as found in Psalm 8. But now look at the second part of that psalm. Notice in the second part of the psalm that there we have the name Yahweh. The law of Yahweh, the testimony of Yahweh, the statutes of Yahweh, the commandment of Yahweh, the fear of Yahweh, the judgments of Yahweh. And then at the end, O Yahweh, my strength and my redeemer. There's a fuller revelation. Notice that this revelation is the revelation of the law of God, not just of his glory and of his handiwork, but of his law. What Uh, governs us in our lives, what we must obey in all of our lives. Notice the adjectives that are attached to that description of the law. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the law, Lord, is sure. The statutes of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The law declares this perfection, this faithfulness, this righteousness, this purity, this cleanness, this truth and righteousness. The law declares it. And why does the law declare it? Because it is the law of the Lord who is all those things in his own being. The law reveals to us the Lord who speaks that law. So it's a fuller revelation than the revelation of God in creation. And then finally, notice the effects of that law. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, making the simple wise, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes. By them, verse 11, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, There is great reward. The law of the Lord then does all these things for us. And David doesn't mean simply the Ten Commandments here. He means the whole law of the Lord which displayed to the people of God Christ and the sacrifices and the high priest and the temple and so on. 
this whole law working to reveal Christ and to bring us to Christ converts the soul, makes the simple wise, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, brings to us then the knowledge of God, living with him, knowing him, being saved from sin and darkness and ignorance, willful blindness. And so we say of that law, it is sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. And we pray with regard to that law, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. We love to study the creation because we see in the creation the glory and beauty, the wisdom and power of our God. But we love even more to study the Word because in the Word He makes Himself known as our God, the God of our salvation, the God who has become to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption and all things that are good. May God bless his words.